This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Akweke Amezi, author of the novel You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty. For the meals in the book, I actually commissioned a chef to create a menu that was specific to Alan and Alan's character and his personality and his heritage because, again, I wanted it to be good. We'll be back with Akweke Ameze after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, 
from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is novelist Akweke Amezi. They are the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Death of Vivek Oji, which was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Prize, the book Pet, a finalist for the National Book Award for Young People's Literature, and Freshwater, which was named a New York Times notable book and shortlisted for the Penn Hemingway Award, the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Award, and the Center for Fiction's First Novel Prize. They were selected as a 5 under 35 honoree by the National Book Foundation. Amazie's new novel is called You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty, which is a literary romance. The novel's main character is Faye who lost her husband in a car accident five years before the book opens. Still bereft, she is only ready for casual dating. When she meets a man who could be perfect for her, they jet off to the islands where other temptations await that Faye can't resist. We began with Akweke Amezi sharing where the story idea for You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty came from. Honestly, this story came from a dream that I had. I have these really cinematic dreams, and they've led to quite a few books, mostly fantasy books that haven't been published. But when I woke up from this one, I just, I really liked the characters, um, and I wanted to see where they would kind of take me. I don't outline my books when I write, so... I just start writing, you know, and I, and I see what happens. And in this case, I was following Faye's character and she was leading me down a lot of interesting paths. Is there anything that you attribute your rich dream life to? A childhood full of imagination, I would say. Like I started writing as soon as I could write, which was when I started reading as well, um, around the age of five. And my parents were very encouraging of anything that had to do with imagination. So we could read whatever we wanted. If we ran out of books, they made sure we had more books. Um, I read the Dr. Doolittle books when I was a kid, and I was convinced that I could talk to animals. 
um, and the animals could understand me. And my dad wouldn't let anyone tell me otherwise because according to him, it did no harm. And I think he just saw it as, you know, my imagination growing some more. So Faye is the main character, and we meet her early on, and she is suffering a great loss. Her, the love of her life has died. She's 29, and it's really difficult for her to get back into the dating world. She lives with her best friend, Joy, and is just dipping her toes back in the water in a very casual, sexual relationship with a man she meets in a bar named Milan. And... That is, it's big territory for her to enter even this with someone. And it's also safe because they don't have to go to those deeper parts. But through Milan, she meets someone else named Nasir who really falls for her and is very patient and kind and loving in his own way and says he doesn't want to push her. He just wants to be friends. And he ends up being from the islands, I'm guessing somewhere near Tobago and Trinidad. It's not ever named. His father lives there. He's a famous chef and restaurateur, and she gets invited to be in an art show. She's an artist. I'm just interested in in her character. You said you had this dream about her, that richness of what loss brings and how loss can maybe inform your life. Yeah, you know, when I had the dream, it was really more about her and going to the island. And then as I started to write her, this whole like storyline about grief and loss started unfolding, which to be honest, I found really irritating at first because I was just trying to write a fluffy romance novel. I wasn't intending to dive into kind of heavier themes, but I tried to stay true to where the story is going. And, and it turned out that the, the grief was foundational to the romantic relationship that she ends up in. One of the things in the very beginning you write about that I think is so revealing of our human nature is when Faye got in this relationship with Milan, it was very physical and it was super casual. But she, you wrote that he hadn't gone looking for more. She was a little hurt. He hadn't gone looking for more. Could he sense the wounded expanse she held inside? Was that what had kept him guarded? Was that what Nasir was hunting? So she's met Nasir by now. But it's always so interesting when you go into something romantic and you don't want anything from the other person, but when they don't want anything from you, it can hurt. (laughs) So I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I think it's just, you know, it's relatable because it's true. I think that people want to be wanted, even if they don't want the per- the other person, but they still want to be wanted. And, and I think we see that, you know, very much in Faye, who's really accustomed as she's dipping her toes back into dating. She's more comfortable with people who want her and... By the time she meets Alan, she realizes that she was very comfortable with that previous dynamic because you don't really have to be as vulnerable. You know, desiring something makes you vulnerable because there's always a chance for rejection. You might not get what you want, but if someone else is desiring you, then you hold the power, so to speak, to turn down the person or not. And so one of the 
really important things when she has a crush on Alan is that for the longest time, she's believing that it's not reciprocal. You know, she thinks it's unrequited and that's a very uncomfortable place for her to be in it. It challenges her in a way that the more casual relationships didn't. And this is before just having a crush in that sense is a really big step from other people crushing on her. Yeah, I mean, we're such complex creatures that we, I mean, we're so tender and sensitive, you know, it's like you can go into this relationship and not want something. And then when someone doesn't want that from you, it hurts so much. And it just, I think, reveals sometimes the fissures in our own need and the stories we tell ourselves. And so much of this book for me or what we got, I got out of it was this general theme of what are our stories? What are the narratives that we hold on to and how do they shape our lives? And I wanted to ask you about that, if that seems accurate. And if you thought about that. Um, I'm always fascinated to hear what, like what people take from the work, because I think that such generative dialogue Right. Like I can write something and there might be things in there that I wasn't, you know, consciously aware of until the like the circle is complete. You know, you write something, but a story is not really a story unless someone listens to it or in this case, unless someone reads it. And that kind of completes the loop. And I think, yeah, the stories that we carry are are pivotal. And I think not just in the story of the book, but the way that stories then connect or engage with our own stories so with you made a fool of debt with your beauty when you're following that love story it connects to a lot of other people's stories or people you know place themselves in the story it's very intertwined and then you know you start thinking well how would I react if I was Faye how would I deal with grief how would I deal with you know this kind of situation where do my stories meet these char- this character stories? And and how does that make me feel? And that's, I don't know, it's one of my favorite parts of writing is that dialogue with readers. How did some of that make you feel? And did it change anything, like any beliefs you had before? No, not really. I think, I'm, I think it's less common for writers to end up writing things that, you know, that challenge their own like core beliefs, I think we tend to experience it more as readers. In this case, in this case, I'm just like, okay, that makes sense because it all came from my imagination. So it's not really going to, like none of it is going to be a surprise to me because I wrote it. Well, what is a book that you, you mentioned that, that writing didn't change you as much as reading something that really changed you? Is there something that you've read that really changed you that also influenced you in the world and how you see things? Oddly, I think it's when I started reading romance again as an adult. I read it a lot as a teenager. And I mean, I was a teenager throughout high school and throughout college. I graduated college when I was 19. So it feels like I was a teenager for a very long time. Um, But reading romance novels now, the worlds are so different. I'm a huge fan of Talia Hibbert. And her, my favorite series of hers is The Brown Sisters, um, which is three books in a series about three sisters. And one of them gets a life, Chloe Brown, 
has a chronically ill protagonist. And that blew my mind, really, because we understand romance to be, you know, the fantasy of a happily ever after. Um, Everything works out in the end, you know, no one ever breaks up. They always end up together by the end of the book. And that's quite literally a genre requirement. But I hadn't realized how reading romance novels about people like me, so dealing with chronic pain, all these ways in which we're marginalized and seeing characters like that get, you know, the happily ever after, it does change, at least for me, it changed my belief in the happily ever after, mostly because it opened up possibility. You know, you could see in reading this book, this is how a chronically ill person should be loved. And and you're able to imagine, oh, you know, this somebody wouldn't find all these things irritating or somebody who would be accommodating to my pain and careful with it because you like because for me I saw it in a book first. And there are many romances that are that kind of have that kind of representation in them, I think. Alyssa Cole's work comes to mind. Um, and these days, it's it's just great to read these love stories that have chronically ill people as protagonists, that have, you know, neurodivergence people, people in wheelchairs. And, and it just opens up so much more possibility for, like, what love can hold, I think. That is so beautiful. That brought tears to my eyes. Like, just that sense of hope. Exactly, yes. Hope is so important. Do you think Faye had hope? I don't think she had much hope starting out. I think that's why she kind of went casual is because there are no expectations with casual to start off with. You know, like it just is what it is. It doesn't have to be anything more. Nobody wants it to be anything more. And it's safe in that sense because you don't have to hope for anything more. And I think what she experiences throughout this story is, you know, kind of the blossoming of hope. And I think that's why she fights so hard for it. I think that's why she pushes forward, even though she's terrified, even though there are high costs, you know, to this love in particular, even though it's hurting somebody else she cares about. But for somebody who's lived through the kind of grief she's lived through and who's lost hope, I think she understands how how necessary it is and she understands how much it's worth when she when she finds it again. I think what's interesting too about her character is I mentioned earlier she meets this man named Nasir. And she met him through her first um, physical lover, no strings attached, named Milan. And Nasir, like she felt this jolt when she met him. And he was so taken by her. And he appeared to be so incredibly sensitive to where she was at, not even knowing her past, but just understanding she wasn't ready. And he was so smitten with her. He was so convincing to her that he just, he would be her friend. It would be platonic. And he really treated her like a queen. You know, he took her out. He paid for things. He 
just treated her kindly and you knew that he was waiting and waiting for the moment. I mean, you knew that, that he wanted more, but what's interesting in what you're saying about hope and things like that is that it would seem that he was safe for her, like a different level of safe than Milan where she wasn't exposing herself. This was someone who was emotionally invested in her and she could have chosen that path. And after all of her trauma that she's experienced, hope was not tied to safety. Hope was tied to mystery. Hope was tied to risk, which is not what you would expect. That's such a good point. I really like the that connection of hope being tied to tied to risk. And I think it, it speaks to what is known and what is unknown. You know, like what's known is safety. Like like you said, Nisera is safe. She could probably predict where the rest of her life would go if she stayed with him. And I think in that sense, if if you can already see everything ahead, if everything is already known, then hope might not factor as much into it. I think that's something about hope that that connects to the unknown. Um, because there's something about hope that's like standing on the edge of a cliff and, you know, looking out and you can't really see the view maybe and it's just it's clouds, but you're but there's a possibility that, you know, when the clouds part, there's going to be something spectacular there. And I think if you could see anything then it would be more certainty than hope. And also I think for Faye, because she's truly been in love before, she has a reference point. So even though things can be delightful with Nasir, they can be comfortable, they can be many things, but she knows, she would always know that she was missing something because she's had that thing before. She had it with her um, her late husband, Jonah. And, and I think it's hard to settle once you've had a love like that. Or more accurately, it's hard to settle when you've had a love like that if you can feel the possibility of another love like that. I think if they had never met Alan, she might have stayed with Nasir because there was there was quite well quite literally no hope of anything better you know she couldn't imagine anything better and i think that's one of the like wonderful or wondrous things about love is when it opens a path that we couldn't even imagine ourselves when it surpasses our imagination and and i think again that's one of the ways that hope can connect to the unknown because we can imagine all kinds of things but there's something really special when you get something beyond what you imagined. And, and for me, at least, hope is, hope is that. It's like, I hope there's something out there better than what I can imagine. I can't describe it because, again, it's beyond the horizon of my imagination. But hope kind of is the bridge to that unknown space. And I think with Faye, when she meets Alan that bridge forms and then the book the question the book is asking that you know or the journey the book is taking us on is is she brave enough to walk along that bridge even when you don't quite know what's going to be on the other side yes and and alam is nasir's father and he is the one that she is staying in his beautiful home in the islands and 
Is there, is there just an aside, is there a reason to not name the island? Well, quite honestly, it's a fictional Caribbean island. I wanted a couple of elements of different islands in one. I wanted the the mountains, like the Blue Mountains in Jamaica, but I wanted the mountains to also be close to the sea, which is something that you see in Trinidad. I mean, technically, it could have been in Trinidad, but I tend to avoid writing very specific places, especially when there's like a patois or like a dialect that I would have to adhere to. Um, because then I end up having to do like a lot of research just to make sure that it's accurate. And I found out early on in my writing career that you could skip all of these problems if you just made the place fictional. Well, I want to go there for sure. (laughs) Well, so do I quite honestly. And I want to be in Alam's house. (laughs) Yes. So she, she fell in love with Alam. You know, she was 29. He was, I believe it was around 48 and Nasir's father. So it was forbidden. I mean, Nasir has brought her to this island. He's so in love with her. And here's this older man who's a celebrity chef and very wealthy and very just self-possessed and also has his own loss in his life. And this, you know, once she's there, she just, as you were saying, she has this crush, but it just builds and it can't, she's so afraid it's all in her head at first. And, you know, usually you have this moment where you have to figure out if it is in your head or not. And I was thinking about this idea of forbidden love. And is this actually a thing? I mean, it's been written about, you know, forever. And, and I'm also wondering, you know, that part of me that is right with you with the hope for something you can't even imagine that when you find something like that, like forbidden can't even come into the equation, but yet it does. Exactly. You know, from, I think from Faye's point of view, what she's found is this very precious possibility. And to walk away from it is unthinkable, but she's not just living in a bubble that's just, you know, her and Alan and we're, made very aware of that by his children's reactions to their, I guess, their blossoming attraction to each other or the fact that they've decided to give a relationship a shot. And I think with the book, I wanted to show how the same situation can feel so different just depending on where you're standing, looking at it, your looking at it from Mr.'s point of view, then it's, you know, this very hurtful betrayal, perhaps less so on Faye's part and more so on his father's part. And certainly if you're looking at it from the daughter, Lorraine, Alan's daughter's perspective, she is absolutely against the entire thing. But if you slip over and you stand with Faye and Alan, And you see like all this like tenderness and all this wonder that they have in finding this feeling again after all their grief, after losing, you know, their respective partners. And from their point of view, you know, I agree that it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it could be taboo because like it feels for them, it feels right. It doesn't seem right to everyone else, but I think that so much of what the book is, is about the choices that we make 
and the costs that we're willing to pay in exchange for this possibility of uh, a spectacular love. Yes, and I think sort of back to that idea of, you know, what what are our stories? I think there's also an element in this novel about what we inherit. Um, you know, for Nasir, in a way, it's, it's what he's inheriting from his father, his childhood, the loss of his mother, um, and how he, you know, deals with that when he doesn't get what he wants with Fahey. But also there's some lines that talk about the inheritance. And I want to talk about Joy, who is Faye's best friend, who's back in New York. But you have a line in there or a little paragraph where she's talking about Joy. And you say um, that Faye didn't even feel like making fun of it, something with Joy. She knew there was a part of Joy that believed she wasn't going to get a happy, settled-down story. Something Faye suspected came from her Ghanaian parents. Something about being deviant, maybe not even deserving what normal people got. Other people's stories could sink in like that and fuck you all the way up, especially when it was family. And there's a few references to Ghanaian parents and Nigerian parents, and I was curious about that idea of inheritance and culture and how that braided into this story for you? You know, I think it's, it's something that is common to like, conser- like religiously conservative families around the entire world. This very limited road that you're supposed to walk down, this very limited idea of self, parents, like propensity to control their children which I think is just heartbreakingly common it honestly just adds up to a lot of trauma for people like trauma that comes from their families that comes from their communities um because in whatever way they are deviant you know they don't conform to these expectations and when you've been raised by people telling you who you are, at some point you're going to believe it or internalize it. And then, you know, so much of the work of healing is undoing all of that damage. But I think the way that we're raised has so much to do with how we move through the world. And I think you see that kind of inheritance, even even with Nasir. Nasir actually moves through the book with absolute confidence that his father will provide him with anything that he needs and it's why it's deeply shocking to him when his father kind of sets a boundary and refuses to go along with what Nasir wants and that for Nasir is I think perhaps uh, a turning point I mean definitely a turning point in his relationship with his father but I think it also speaks to the kind of security that he enjoyed before that moment. And I think, yeah, it can go it can go either way. I think, too, it explains for him, because he was so kind and so fawning and so patient with Faye, because I think he was so sure in the end that he would get her. And when he didn't, he just turned. <laughs> it's like he was a 
toddler having a temper tantrum at her. (laughs) And yes, I understand that when you are so in love, that hurts when you don't get it. But it's also like, do you really think that you could be so nice to her for so long and then throw a temper tantrum and then she'll change her mind and think, oh yeah, I should be with you because you behaved like that. And it's sort of like a microcosm of what you're saying. Like he finally didn't get something he was sure he would get gonna get yes you know alan his dad had already given up a previous relationship because monsieur and his sister lorraine um didn't approve of it and and monsieur i think was very comfortable in this idea that you know a parent's life is for the children not for themselves but for their children and i think he'd grown you know like a little complacent in that and there's always a point where, you know, as they say, like kids look at their parents and you realize that this is a person separate from you, like separate from being your parents. Um, and and also with Nasir, you know, you see that I think you get the true gauge of someone's character when they don't get what they want, when someone says no, when things don't go their way. And with Nasir, you see, you know, it's it's easy for him to be generous and patient because he was getting everything he wanted um even if he wasn't sleeping with Faye yet he was sleeping with other people she wasn't even doing that (laughs) and and yeah and then she says no and and fair enough she says no by choosing his father which and he doesn't get to find out from either of them so understandably it's a little stressful but he does get pretty um pretty upset and like you said, throws a little bit of a of a tantrum. And in some ways, I think that, you know, part of what he does inherit from Alan is that generosity, is that kindness. But I think there's a difference, and perhaps one of Asian experience, there's a difference between understanding that you move through the world this way because you've chosen to be this person, regardless of how other people react to it. And when Nasir is, when he's moving through the world that way, but he thinks he's then entitled to what he wants because he moved through the world that way. I know. I love sort of the entitlement of thinking you can behave like that and then someone would just change their mind. Like you just totally turn into some asshole and you're fighting them to be <laughs> with you. And then they'll be like, oh, yeah, OK, that you, you seem good. You know, the sad part is I'm actually sure that does work on people. I know it does. There are people who love that, who love, you know, like, oh, you're passionate, you're jealous, you're, you know, you care so much. This is proof of how much you care because you're this agitated or it's toxic. But unfortunately, there are a lot of people who would find how Alan resolves conflict to be boring or not passionate enough. You know, I mentioned joy and I think that that's another romance story in here is this this story of their female friendship. They've been friends since they were, I believe, in high school. They've been through so much together. They live together. And Joy, in a way, is this a weird mirrored opposite of Nasir because she speaks the truth. She doesn't sort of try to protect Fahey in a certain way. She calls her on her bullshit. And they also had a kind of entwined 
past with one another, and yet they've moved on to this mature, grounded, loving friendship. Yeah, they've got this amazing friendship. And I based it on like the friendships I had when I was also in my 20s in Brooklyn. Very intertwined, very intimate, very much being able to look at each other and see each other, even if you don't always choose to talk about this. I might write a sequel for Joy. I just I just have so many books to write. And every time I think I'm writing a one-off book, the characters end up being so complex that, you know, they warrant their own spin-offs. I think it would be fun to write a spin-off about Nasir because I would be fascinated to just kind of follow him from this moment in Fool of Death and see how he grows from that. It's interesting, back to the beginning, that this came from a dream because you also write very richly about food and art and music. And one of the things that I think is fun about being a writer is that you can put out these creative ideas without actually having to do them. And what I mean by that, for example, is you gave Faye her whole artistic life. You described her art openings. You just described the kind of art that she does. And in a way, it's like you don't have to go and do that art yourself because you kind of did it in the book. And I just was wondering if you wanted to talk about writing about art and if you do visual art at all. I do make visual art. um, And I think a large part of the work of creating things is creating the concept in the first place. You know, you have to know what you're going to do before you execute it. I have a pet peeve whenever I'm reading books or watching movies and you have a character who's an artist and no one ever writes a bad artist. You know, they always write an amazing artist. (laughs) But my pet peeve is when the person's art is actually bad um, because then it just ruins the entire thing for me. And then I don't have any faith in the taste of the person who created the larger work. Because I'm like, your character's making bad art and you're trying to convince me in this story that the art is good and I'm not buying it. So with this, I really wanted to make sure that all the art in the book was good. Not just to readers, but like if somebody working in that field, you know, read about it and read the descriptions, they'd be like, oh yeah, I would love to go to that exhibition. You know, I would love to be at that seven course dinner. For the meals in the book, I actually commissioned the chef to create a menu that was specific to Alan and Alan's character and his personality and his heritage. Um, because again, I wanted it to be good. And for Faye, I just thought, you know, what would, what would I do if I was Faye? What would I make? I work with blood as a primary medium. So I used it for her as well. And, and I do interior design as well. So I designed Alan's house (laughs) and I had to fall into a bit of an architecture rabbit hole trying to figure out the style of his house. It's tropical modern, I figured it out. Um, But it was interesting designing a house for someone who wasn't me uh, because it wasn't exactly to my taste. And usually I just design for myself. But in this case, I was like, what would Alan choose? What would fit his personality? What kind of art would he collect? that kind of thing. And it was really fun. You know, it made the experience of writing the book a bit more than just writing down a story because it really was, you know, constructing this world complete with the food, with the architecture, with the visual art, all of that. 
So you commissioned a chef? I did. I did. I commissioned a chef to write me a menu. (laughs) Did he or she or they make any of it? No, they did not. That's still something I want to do. But um, what he did was he, every single meal in the book, like we went through every scene that had a meal and, you know, I gave him the context for it. We talked about it. And he created not just the seven course dinner that Alan makes in the book, but every single meal that Alan makes. Actually, every meal that's in the book that Faye eats on the island. Um, and he, we talked about, you know, what spices I wanted to use, what flavor profile. My favorite herb is culantro, which is a variant of cilantro. It's a broad leaf herb and it's much stronger than cilantro. And I am obsessed with it. I grow it here in New Orleans. And it's used a lot in like Latin America. It's used a lot in Vietnamese cooking as well. Um, and so we put a lot of that into the book as well, just because I love that herb. And yeah, and then he talked about what the food would smell like, um, what the colors would be, what the, you know, drink pairings would be. It was really, it was really in depth. I feel like Simon and Schuster should throw you a book party and bring the chef to make it all. That's what I think, too. You know, the pandemic is really messing up a lot of desires that I have. But I absolutely want like a fancy dinner party where we recreate the seven course dinner. That that makes me think because you're an artist and because you were talking, even though you were just talking about this with the chef and you were kind of designing the house, that there's like a physical aspect like a bodily element to writing for you and I'm wondering if that's true what it is is that whenever I write I see it in my head first um so you know they had this whole conversation online where they were like uh, some people have an internal monologue and other people don't I'm not an internal monologue person I was shocked to find out that people had internal monologues it sounds very exhausting I see everything in pictures So every time I'm writing, the first step is obviously imagining it. And I see it play in my head like a movie, complete, like in 3D, complete with all the sounds, all the colors, all the sensory information. And then my job in writing it down is to transcribe it, not just the the plain actions, but also the in the entire vibe that was happening. And that's why my writing tends to be so descriptive in a very particular way. It's because I'm trying to recreate an immersive world that I was already in beforehand. And I'm trying to recreate that on paper. And that for me really is the challenge in my craft (laughs) is can I capture that sense of the world I was walking through And can I recreate it for somebody else? Can I translate it for somebody else in the book so that when a reader picks it up, they fall right into the same world? I wanted to ask you about this idea of permanence. It came in a little bit at the end, but because you're talking so much about loss and death for some of these characters and that fear, I think, comes in when you find new love is like is it gonna is it gonna be there and you have a line in there where Faye's talking to someone who commissions her art and she says I think people desire permanence but then 
the person who's commissioning the art says, you know, we know all too well how futile such a desire can be, don't we? And they do. You know, thinking about permanence could probably occupy everyone's minds forever because we're so mm-hmm. attached. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to to ask you about some thoughts about that. I mean, I, I'm kind of with Faye on this one, just this idea that, you know, things rot, things end, and to try and seize them and prevent that from happening is, as the character says, futile. I think it's one of the simplest and yet the most difficult lessons to learn just from being alive is this, is learning how to be present in a moment, even when knowing the moments will end and how to show up fully to that moment, even though the moments will end. And I think a lot of people miss out on moments because they know the moment's going to end and they're like, and I think it's, it's the thing we're talking about, about hope, right? And the unknown and what Faye and Alan are looking for is a lot of people can't imagine following, you know, a taboo love in that sense without a guarantee that, you know, oh, we're going to be together forever. And Faye and, Faye and Alan are doing it with no kind of guarantee. They don't even know if they're going to, like when they make the choice, all they're doing is let's, all they're doing is saying, you know, let's try dating. And, and Faye brings it up where she's like, are you willing to blow up your life just for, just for this? And by that, she means like just for something that could be transient. Is it worth it? And Alan's answer is that it is because the moment is important too. The possibility is important too. And I think it takes a lot of courage to show up with all the costs and with all the risks and to, you know, risk it all on something that might not happen and to still understand that the moment is worth it, even if it ends. And do you want to say anything about the title, like how you came up with that or or what it means to you? The title is from a Florence and the Machine song called Hunger. And the full lyric goes, I think, oh, you in all your vibrant youth, how could anything bad ever happen to you? You make a fool of death with your beauty. Um, and I loved that sentiment because it made me think about, you know, this this hope, this emotion that exists between Faye and Alan specifically, these people who have recovered from grief, even though it still walks with them. And there's so much of wonder in those lines in the song, right? It's like you're looking at someone and you're just struck with wonder that this person is alive, that this person is here. And, you know, you're suffused by this emotion that only good things should happen to this person. And, you know, this person is more beautiful than death. And I feel like that really captures the essence of what Faye and Alan feel for each other. So that's why I made it the title. I actually thought it was too long to be a title at first, and I thought that we would have to change it to something shorter. But then, you know, Atria ran with it and fits it on the cover, more importantly. And so here we are. Yeah, I sensed just from the moments that you talked about music in the book that it was really important to you. Yes, I mean, music always is, but I think enough for me to to make it the title. I think that sense of wonder and possibility is something 
that is rare. You know, like you said before, like Faye, Dayton, Nasir, it's like, there are a lot of things there, but it is safe. And I think with Alan, that moment of finding the wonder or even repeated small moments of repeatedly, you know, finding the wonder over and over again. I think that's what love is, you know, is finding space for wonder, no matter how long, you know, you've been with the person. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? Yes. Um, I'm going to read from Bell Hooks from her book, All About Love. When I talked of love with my generation, I found it made everyone nervous or scared, especially when I spoke about not feeling loved enough. On several occasions, as I talked about love with friends, I was told I should consider seeing a therapist. I understood that a few friends were simply wary of my bringing up the topic of love and felt that if I saw a therapist, it would give them a break. But most folks were just frightened of what might be revealed in any exploration of the meaning of love in our lives. Yet whenever a single woman over 40 brings up the topic of love, again and again, the assumption rooted in sexist thinking is that she is desperate for a man. No one thinks she is simply passionately, intellectually interested in the subject matter. No one thinks she is rigorously engaged in the philosophical undertaking wherein she is endeavoring to understand the metaphysical meaning of love in everyday life. Do you want to share why you chose that? Honestly, it was that last line about being rigorously engaged in a philosophical undertaking. For me, it was one of the first times that I had language to describe my own work. You know, I write across a lot of different genres. I write across a lot of different topics. And what I'm really interested in is metaphysical in nature. And it's not something that is really considered a lot when other people talk about my work. Um, People have very comfortable boxes to kind of place my work in. And, And when I read this, I wanted to like shout out. I'm like, yes, I too am rigorously engaged in a philosophical undertaking about the metaphysics of my, you know, topic of interest, which in my case is embodiment or, you know, indigenous spiritualities um and it threads through all my work but i really liked that because i was like oh this is someone who understands how you can be you can dedicate your work to like this again this intellectual endeavor and yet when other people from the outside see you they just flatten it into into something reductive Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. This is uh, an excerpt from You Made a Fool of Debt with Your Beauty that describes one of Faye's installations. 413 gold wedding rings hung, hung suspended from the ceiling at varying heights, chiming softly as they rang against each other. Light reflected off them and the mirrors, breaking into pieces against the visitors in the room. It looked and sounded like rain, like wind chimes, like warning bells. It would be enchanting if you didn't know what this really was. 
Faye walked through it slowly. The room was silent. Only three or four people could fit at a time. And everyone was trying not to disturb the rings too much. It was impossible, of course. But Faye liked their discomfort, their disruption. This was some of the point. What most people tried to do was stand in one place and look through the rings with their eyes, trying to find the epicenter, the ring that started it all. It was in her artist's statement for this piece, but she never gave a map of where she'd hung it. The ring from the accident, splashed with old blood that Faye was careful to never clean off. She always hung it and a few other rings out of reach so they wouldn't brush against anyone's face or shoulders. And she always knew where it was, no matter how many rings she filled a room with. Do you want to say anything more about that? Yeah, you know, that was, it was a challenging piece to write because I had to imagine or I had to conceptualize her work in the first place. And I had to conceptualize it as an installation piece and how it would work in the space and how it would interact with people who were visiting the exhibition and also keep it true to who Faye was and the way that she was processing her grief through her art and the way that, you know, it's a little morbid. You know, she's kept the wedding ring from from her accident, the accident in which her husband died. And I definitely fell down a Google rabbit hole of whether blood could stay on metal for years. It can, but it's just incredibly delicate. And I think for me, this is one of the most immersive like parts of Faye to write is to like describe her art. Um, there's also a moment, a few passages down where Alan is in the same installation with her and they have this incredibly intense moment because she knows that he understands exactly what that piece means and exactly the kind of grief that she's working through with it. In the book, he wears his wedding ring around his neck all the time. And I think it's an incredibly moving moment to kind of feel how grief walks with both of them. Where do you write? I write at home always because I like writing in the quiet and away from people. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? You know, funnily enough, I go right back into books. I just go in as a reader. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I used to show it to my other writer friends, but unfortunately I write too fast and they just couldn't get through all my manuscripts as fast as I was writing it because they were working on their own things. So now it's actually my agent who reads everything first. How have you dealt with rejection? Mm, I truly believe that rejection is just guiding me away from places that I don't need to be in, even if I thought I wanted to be in it. Um, And that there's, again, that possibility beyond what I can imagine that is on the other side of, of the rejection. I think one of my favorite examples is I really wanted to go to this writing residency in Berlin where they give you an apartment for a year. It's like really fancy and really lovely. And I was absolutely convinced that that's where I needed to be. And I got rejected from it. And in the year that I would have been there, I bought my house in New Orleans instead, which was something I didn't even know was possible. But if I could go back 
and pick between, you know, the fork in the road, I would absolutely pick the one with the rejection because I ended up somewhere better than I thought I would. What is your favorite word? Grim. <laughs> um, it's, it's part of a longer thing. I have this thing with grim satisfaction where with, the, with publishing, everyone always asks me if I'm happy or if I was, you know, excited about things. And I don't really feel joy or excitement. I feel grim satisfaction, but it's, I think it's a really flexible word because so much of what's happening in the world is, you know, it's grim as well in, in the bad way, but there's something austere about the word that suits me. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. I'm so appreciative. Of course. This was a pleasure. If you liked today's show with Akweke Amezi, author of the novel You Made a Fool of Death with Your Beauty, check out my interview with one of their favorite writers, Nalini Singh. We talked about the thriller genre, the subconscious element of writing, and creating multidimensional characters. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 360 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Zena Hashem-Beck, Charles Baxter, Elizabeth Strout, and Lydia Yuknovich. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.